these airways. So stay tuned for the best and leading-edge progressive ideas and analysis. And remember to support independent media financially. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone My name is Lady Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. I have three amazing guests this week. My first, who I want to bring on as soon as possible, is Senator John Liu, the powerful chair of the New York Senate New York City Education Committee and a former New York City chancellor and council member from Queens. Then we'll be joined a little later in the show with the two new appointees to the panel for educational policy, who are both powerhouses in their own right, Dr. Kalira Salas-Ramirez and Tajin Azad. But before I bring on my guests, I'd like to acknowledge the tragic school shooting in Texas, and before that, the tragic shooting in Buffalo. I thought wrongly that assault or automatic weapons were completely banned in New York State, but I was wrong. It turns out that it's still easy to purchase an AR-15 weapon that can be easily turned into an assault weapon, and that's what the Buffalo killer did. Governor Hochul has now proposed that the purchase age of AR-15 rifles be moved to 21 from 18 which would be a good first step as both shooters were only 18 in these recent mass casualty events. But I don't understand why the sale of weapons that can easily be turned into automatic weapons can't be banned altogether. Also, I wanna make a quick announcement that Class Size Matters will be holding our annual Parent Action Conference next Saturday, June 4th at 4 p.m. via Zoom, co-sponsored by New York City Kids PAC. The theme is how parent advocacy can make a difference for New York City kids. More information about the agenda and how to sign up is on the Class Size Matters website. I'll also drop the link in on the podcast resources section and the WBAI website. But now I'd like to bring in on Senator John Liu. He is a former city council member and also, in my opinion, the best New York City controller we've ever had, especially in terms of ferreting out waste in city government and at the DOE. He's also one of the smartest guys I know, and hopefully he can tell us what wild and crazy negotiations are happening right now in Albany with the session due to lapse in just a few days. Thank you so much for being with us today, Senator Liu. Welcome to Talk Out of School. Lainey, thank you so much for still being in the fight after all of these years. It's been 20 years we've been in the trenches together and uh, a lot of successes and some things that are still on the uh, activism bucket list, shall we say. But we're getting there slowly but surely. And as you mentioned, our the legislative session for 2022 is coming to an end. Uh, we typically end in June so that we can spend the remainder of the calendar year in our home districts because that's what we're meant to do. We're we're meant to spend time in the state capitol legislating, but also meant to have uh, plenty of time in the home district, meeting with constituents, dealing with the problems on the ground. And uh, and that's, that's our job. And so in the final days of the legislative session, we have a number of issues. Uh, Thank you for, uh, mentioning the the horrific, horrific massacre in Uvalde. I mean, it's just it's it's so hard to even even think about. You know, like those nineteen kids in the same room, and I, I don't know. You know, I don't know if it would have been the first best, better to be the first, or I can only imagine what the nineteenth child was was thinking at the time. Anyway, it's um. It's really difficult. We're going to have to legislate. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Governor Hochul has put out some legislative initiatives, as well as my colleagues and our leader, Andrew Stewart-Cousins. We, we do intend to plan on uh, additional legislation that will tighten up the sale and the availability of firearms in the state of New York. We, we Again, no question, we need federal federal gun legislation, gun control, and, uh, and, and we need Congress to act. 
But short of that, uh, we there are still more things we can do to tighten up our laws here and keep people safe, keep people alive, for goodness sakes. Uh, so we, ha- we have that on the docket. Um, you know, we also have uh, in anticipation of a terrible, terrible Supreme Court decision that, that was leaked and therefore unfortunately expected that would overturn a five-decade precedent uh, in Roe v. Wade. Uh, we're going to, uh, in, in New York State, codify abortion as reproductive health care, women's health care, and, uh, and that, will, uh, that will protect us against whatever decision may be coming down from the Supreme Court. And also, uh, we believe that in the state of New York, we can help uh, women and families in, from other states also, because we're looking to pass laws that will uh, help protect anybody who comes to the state of New York for these uh, health services. Uh, this is out-of-school talk, and so let me get to some of the education issues. Right. Uh, and, and some... Before we get there, though, do you think there's a, a chance that meaningful gun legislation will be passed this session, or do you think it's going to have to be put off till next session? No, I expect that um, we're going to – well, you're right. I mean, it's, it's all been very late, and we literally have to put bills um, up within the next – few days otherwise there won't be enough time to vote on them but you know june june 2nd is is uh is our intended last day but that doesn't mean that if something urgent comes up that we can't continue beyond that date uh and so uh, i don't if, if something is urgent or if somehow we can't get it done by june 2nd then uh governor hochel has talked about a possible emergency session thereafter so uh, we need to get it done, and, and the deadline doesn't stop us from getting the work done. Okay, so now to the question everybody's been talking about, mayoral control and school governance. I'd love to hear what's happening behind this. <laughs> well, you, you know, we, there, we are still heavy, heavily in negotiations. Uh, it's it's a multi-party party in, in negotiation, you know, it's uh, it's a negotiation among my colleagues in the state Senate. We negotiate with our counterparts in the state assembly. Then there is the governor that ultimately would sign the bill, presumably. And there is city hall and the department of education, which has to run the schools. And, um, and they're the ones who are looking for an extension of mayoral control. Uh, but those are the overt parties to the, the negotiation. There are other interested parties as well. There is the state education department, and there are, in my view, the most important people, the parents and activists. And, you know, as legislators, we presumably represent them directly in the negotiations. And we certainly have heard from you over the years, Lainey. Um, <laughs> like a broken many parents. record, probably. Uh, no, no, it's uh, you are nothing if not consistent. For sure. That's to your credit. Um, I, I hear from lots of parents and organizations of parents from my district, as well as from the, uh, from the, throughout the city of New York in my capacity and responsibility as chair of the New York City Education Committee in the state Senate. Uh, so there are multi, there are lots of uh, parties to the negotiation. Uh, I think we're getting there. I, I am confident that we will have it done in time before the end of this legislative session and therefore be uh, well before the expiration of the current law that allows mayoral control. And so I I don't think that we are going to take away mayoral control in that we would allow the law to simply lapse and therefore revert back to the system of local school boards that existed prior to 2002 and the initiation of mayoral control. Uh, But, you know, it's not going to be a simple extension with no changes whatsoever. There have to be some changes, especially since in these last several years, parents have become more and more left out of the process, feeling disengaged and uh, uh, and really disconnected from the system. I believe that uh, parents feeling uh, no connection with the system is one of the main reasons why school public school enrollment is continuing downward 
even as the population of the city is continuing upward. So we have to reverse that trend. And, uh, and engaging parents is, I think, one of the key ways to do that, to, to give parents a sense that not only can they make some kind of suggestions that can le- lead to changes to improve their kids' education, but even just getting simple answers to some questions, which many times, unfortunately, parents have not felt they've gotten responsiveness from the Department of Education. So uh, so I'm looking at uh, some changes to the Panel for Educational Policy, which, as you know, is is our school board, our citywide school board. Uh, it, a majority of these school board members are appointed by the mayor. Uh, the borough presidents each have an appointee. And there is one elected, one member of this school board, this PEP, that's elected by the leadership of the 32 community education councils throughout the city. Um, we're, we're looking to uh, add perhaps a couple of more members, although still allowing the mayor to retain the majority of appointments, but also looking to strengthen the voices and require PEP appointments uh, of parents who have a student with an IEP, a, a student with disability, as well as a, as a student who is a multi-language learner. And those are two particular voices that have felt um, really left out of the process. Uh, and then there are a number of ish other measures that we're considering that would strengthen the CEC process, uh, such as uh, their role in superintendent selection, and uh, and a number of other issues. Oh, and 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 uh, an important one, uh, rather than having PEP members that those school board members appointed and removed at any given moment by their appointer, whether it be the mayor or borough president, uh, that they would be appointed for fixed terms, although there would be a, a, a an ability to remove somebody with cause. Right. There's been a lot of confusion about that because the reporters have have mentioned um, 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 term limits, and it's really not term limits, is my understanding, is what yeah, yeah it is. fixed terms because the two prior mayors have actually fired uh, uh, um, uh, uh, some of their appointees when they voted uh, in a way or threatened to vote in a way they didn't like. That's right. That's right. It, the fixed terms is uh, is the is, is the correct term, not uh, not term limits. And there was recently something leaked about having one year terms for PEP members because I don't know anyone who's asked for that, and I don't think it's really that rational because it takes a while to learn the ropes. Is that still under discussion? One year terms. Um, that's one of the possibilities. It's it's been discussed. The uh, the term of appointment has been discussed to be anywhere from one to three years and we'll we'll finalize that in the coming days also and another thing that needs to be finalized is that uh, if we do extend mayoral control uh, which i again i expect to um it's not going to be forever so it'll be for x number of years and and that's something that we are negotiating as well It, it won't be as long as the four years that the mayor and the governor originally wanted uh, but, you know, it'll be uh, it should be, in my opinion, at least long enough to provide some level of stability for our public school system. So I've heard that the Senate wants two years and the Assembly wants three years. Can you confirm that or not? I can confirm that some senators want two years uh-huh. and some assembly members want three years. But okay. there are also some assembly members who want two years and some senators who want three years. So. Uh, that's something that's, the place. yeah, it's a, it's a subject of ongoing negotiation. So, you know, that there's one issue that is closest to my heart and really my life's work, which is class size. And you were quoted last week in the New York post saying that you were quote on board with the plan to tie a smaller class size requirement into an extension of mayoral control, capping classrooms in the low twenties of kids. Can you elaborate on that? Well, Lainey, that question seems to be coming completely out of left field. I would never in my wildest dreams have imagined that you would ask a question like that. (laughs) 
Really? I still remember oh, it was, um, it's got to be like 17 or 18 years ago when uh, you gave a whole bunch of us at City Hall buttons that said class size matters, but, but the word class was in small print. Um, it, in any event, um, the, uh, yeah, I do believe that, that uh, we should have small class sizes. In fact, it is well, widely accepted academically and uh, in, in, among educators that small class sizes lead to better educational outcomes, particularly when, uh, when the, the, um, the, the needs of the students in a particular class could, be, could range very widely from transportation issues to homelessness challenges to language ability. I mean, you know, in New York City, we're a very diverse city. And so our classes are very diverse. If you have a lot of different kids with uh, special challenges of one sort or another, and you, you have, you know, 30, 35 kids in a class, it's so difficult, if not impossible, for a single teacher to uh, to provide a good outcome. And so small class sizes absolutely matter. Um, you know, in, in fact, the concept of small class sizes was grounded in the court decision called Campaign for Fiscal Equity. Uh, that was that was the basis for what was meant by a sound basic education. And that also provided the uh, a formula for determining foundation aid, which is the basic amount of or minimum amount of state education funding in order for school districts throughout the state to provide that sound basic education. Uh, as you know, uh, and with your help and many others, other activists, last year, uh, last fiscal year, we began a plan to, to uh, fully fund, finally, after 15 years, that court mandate for, uh, for funding foundation aid. Um, and we phased that in over three years. We've made the second year's commitment this year, and I fully expect that next year we'll make the final addition. These are annual, these are annual increases. And so by next year, we will have fully, we have, will have fully fulfilled the court mandate when it comes to funding of education. But now that we have fully funded, we also have to fully fulfill the concept of what a sound basic education is. And I think that uh, small class sizes is an absolutely critical component of that. So, uh, and, and, and you know what? The, the reality is, it's, this is not something that any of us would have liked, but it is the reality now that enrollment in our public schools is down. For whatever reason, it's down. We, we all know what reasons there are. But uh, class sizes, for the most part, are already down. And so I think it's a matter of not largely a matter of not letting the majority of the classes, which are already in compliance with what we think is a good class size, to, uh, to remain at those levels and make sure that in the next several years, as we phase this kind of class, lim class size limitation in, that, uh, that the additional funding that's coming from Foundation A to meet the dollar requirement will also be used to meet the requirements in principle. Well, I am crossing my fingers and holding my breath. Um, you know, well, if you have some toes, Lainey, I, that, I think those would help too. I'm crossing my toes, I'm crossing my legs, I'm crossing my arms. <laughs> okay. uh, I actually, you know, firmly believe that this is the one thing that would be truly transformational for our schools. I know that word is used a lot, but I'm hoping that with, with your leadership and the leadership of others in the, in the legislature, we'll finally get this done. And it really would be a wonderful, a wonderful opportunity for New York City students to finally get the smaller classes that I think they've needed, but they need now more than ever before. So I, I want to transition a little bit to a great victory that you just had. Um, it was announced that the mayor agreed to put Asian American and Pacific Islander history into the curriculum for the first time. Can you explain why this is so important? Uh, yeah, I, I, and, and thank you for that, Lainey. I, I wouldn't characterize it, <coughs> excuse me, as, as my victory. This is a victory for 
all the students and children in our schools and all the a victory for all the people of New York City. The, the, the announcement made by the mayor and the chancellor on Thursday that there now will be Asian American history and studies included and taught in public schools uh, with an initial rollout this coming September and a fully phased in integration in the next couple of years. Uh, it comes at a, a critical time because we've all seen the horrific videos and vicious attacks against Asian Americans. Uh, this, these attacks, this uh, what I have called this onslaught of anti-Asian hate, whether it be uh, stupid little discriminatory and and bigoted gestures and and actions to uh, violent attacks, uh, there this exactly coincides with the COVID-19 crisis. As soon as COVID hit, the anti-Asian slurs and, and gestures and attacks started. And this is part of a pattern that, uh, that Asian Americans have faced ever since Asians got to this country. Uh, you know, we've been blamed for anything that goes wrong, whether it be uh, economic recession or, you know, warfare in like totally different parts of the world to this global pandemic that we're all grappling with. We've, we've been scapegoated. And, you know, I, I mean, I like to keep it simple. There's, there's a simple reason why we get scapegoated. It's that people just still don't know a whole lot about Asians. And it's always easy to, you know, blame people to, to uh, scapegoat people that you don't know and that you're not familiar with. And it's no wonder that people are not familiar with Asian Americans. There's nothing taught in the in the schools about what Asian Americans are. Um, I, I often cite a, a survey that was done last year, where uh, 2,700 Americans were asked to like name an Asian American, and almost half of them couldn't name a single Asian, like not even one. And of the ones that could name an Asian American, the number one the one, number one response was Jackie Chan. Now, you know, Jackie Chan is a movie star from Hong Kong. He's not Asian American. And the second most response, most common response was Bruce Lee. Now, you know, Bruce Lee is, is not an Asian American, although he did spend his final years here in the United States. Uh, but, you know, he died decades ago. So the point is, people just don't know a whole lot about Asian Americans. And, and when you have that kind of situation with, uh, of course, combined with this, um, the former president calling COVID-19 the China virus or, or the Kung flu, uh, that just leads to uh, a recipe for disaster for Asian Americans. So I think, you know, people have talked about uh, increasing criminal penalties, putting people in jail longer, having a cop on every corner. I mean, you know, all of those things. Okay, fine. We can do that, but that's not going to get at the problem. The real problem is ignorance, hatred and bigotry is rooted in ignorance. And there's only one way to, uh, to er eradicate ignorance. And that is to start with our little kids and teach them about the Asian American experience about how, you know, we contributed to, the success of the United States of America. We've, we've been here for, you know, almost 200 years and we've contributed in a lot of different ways to not only the history of this country, but the, the modern day culture, the academics, business, uh, even politics nowadays. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what it's all about. And, and I was really uh, excited that uh, this mayor and this chancellor embraced that kind, kind of concept. So it's also true that the Asian Americans in the school system, I think, are now at over 16 percent and one of the fastest growing segments of our, our student body. So it's really, really critical that we learn more about um, their, the, the contributions to our country of the Asian Americans and the Pacific Islanders. An educator on Twitter asked me today to ask you the following question. Can you ask him if he is including Afghans in the AAPI curriculum? Because when yes. I was in third grade, I was asked where I was from my teacher, and I replied, Afghanistan. She didn't know where it was, so I said Asia. She laughed and said, no Asian. I never referred myself as an Asian again. So can you just quickly describe which areas of the country uh, this, this covers? Okay. Which areas um, of the world. 
so that's a great question, Lainey. And, uh, you know, I think the real question is who identifies as an Asian American? So if, if some, somebody is from Afghanistan, uh, I venture to guess that um, almost everybody who immigrated from Afghanistan and the, uh, the rest of the Asian subcon- South Asian subcontinent, including Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, uh, and some of the smaller countries that they identify themselves as from Asia, Asian American. Uh, and certainly, the, you know, what people largely perceive to be Asians, meaning people from China, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and also Southeast Asia, which would include the Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Vietnam. I, I hope I didn't forget any countries off the top of my head. But Asia is a large, con- a large continent. So, you know, if you're if you immigrated from Russia, most people who who immigrated from Russia, which is mostly in Asia, they don't really identify themselves as being Asian American. Or if in the, if they immigrated from Turkey or Iran. Uh, they even though they are from the continent of Asia, they typically don't identify themselves as Asian American. So I, I, you know, this is more an issue of identity, and I would say self identity than, you know, categorizing any countries or, or literally saying that somebody is an immigrant or the their family immigrated from the continent of Asia. So thank you so much for being with us today, Senator Liu. Thank you for your leadership and all you've done for New York City children, both as a council member, as a controller, and now at the state Senate. And we'll be really watching carefully um, the last few days of the legislature, hoping that um, my dream comes true and many parents' dreams come true. (laughs) I'm sure you will be. Watching closely, I, I really thank you for having me today. And and now we can get to the real experts, Dr. Salas Ramirez. We have Tazin Azad. Uh, you're now going to get the real scoop, Lainey. Well, we'll get another side of, the, of, of these issues, I'm sure. Thank you again. And I hope that you can come back again soon and tell us what happened and what didn't happen and what you hope may happen in the future in terms of other legislative um, issues. Thank you so much again. I look forward to it. Take care. Bye. So this is Laini Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBI Radio, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. And I'm really thrilled to be able to introduce two dynamite parent activists who were both recently appointed to the panel for educational policy. The Manhattan appointee, Kalira Salas Ramirez, and the Brooklyn appointee, Tajin Azad. And you both can... uh, Undo your, open up your microphones at this point, because you have control over that. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you for inviting us. I have a a little guest next to me, so. (laughs) Hello, peace and blessings. So there was a lot of excitement on Twitter and on the email chains about you guys being here today. So uh, I've uh, uh, people are really eager to hear what you have to say. So let's get right to it. Uh, one of you, e- either one, can you explain what the panel for educational policy is and how it came into being? I think uh, Senator Lou mentioned that briefly, but one of you, can you explain? Tajin, you want to explain? Yeah, so um, Panel for Education Policy is a 15-member um, panel, um, which is, um, you know, in common term, the school board of New York City public school system. Um, we uh, sort of oversee or um, pass uh, the contracts, uh, co-location determinations, and have the ability to advise policies um, that comes out of DOE. Um, this is what it says on paper. Uh, so far. Uh, um, and out of those 15 members, there are five um, borough appointees, one elected panel member from through the CECs, and the rest are mayoral appointees. So that is the um, sort of the on the book definitions. Clarice, you want to take out the rest of them? Yeah, some of the other things that we also um, discuss and vote on are uh, utilization proposals across the city. So if a uh, Charter school is going to be co-located with a public school. Um, we also have the opportunity to engage in conversations around policy. Some of the policies that we vote on are Chancellor's regulations and any sort of amendment, any new definition 
that um, is incorporated into the Department of Education in terms of practices. We do not, however, because folks are like, we need a vote on admissions policies. Yeah, we don't get, we get to ask about those things. So feel free to hit us up and like tell us to ask, Um, but we don't get to vote on that. Uh, And we don't, you know, we can have briefings and discuss, but the Department of Education uh, really are the ones that are implementing different types of instructionals, pedagogical practices, different kinds of assessments. If an assessment is tied to a contract, then we vote on it. But in terms of deciding which one it is, we don't get to do that. Um, so we want to make sure that that's clear. Uh, and hopefully, you know, as we're talking about the redefining mayoral control in the school board, we incorporate some of these things in terms of the power that CECs and um, the PEP can have uh, so that we can make pu- have public comment when it comes to different admissions practices, class size, all the things, um, because there are some things that we don't, we just don't have an opportunity to um, any power over. Can you explain your background briefly and how you both got involved in parent advocacy? Tajin, you want to go first? I, of course. I think I got involved by necessity. I am a mother of three New York City public school system. One is in high school, one is in middle school, and one is in kindergarten. Um, and uh, I myself was a public school student at one point and sort of got involved in the uh, into this um, advocacy role as soon as I realized that my experiences or uh, of the inequities in DRE hasn't really changed Um as my children were um, getting in, um, getting into the DOE. So, um, and then also I am a hyper-local organizer um, around language access in my community, in the Bangladeshi community. Um, and through their um, sort of development of their civic um, rights uh, sort of uh, engagement, uh, we realized that school is the first most governance um, structure that um, all parents have access to. And, and sort of that's how I got into this sort of space. And the thing about being an advocacy role in education is you pretty soon um, get uh, in in the spaces where a lot of OGs um, have been organizing already, and this is a work um, to be done in solidarity with a lot of other folks. And and I am I'm super blessed to be in in the spaces of um, folks that have been doing it for a long, long time. Uh, and slowly but surely, they have worked me into those folds, uh, and I've sort of uh, graduated from every level of parent engagement platform. So this is from a general membership in the PA to a SLT member to a PA president uh, to a, a district-wide Title I um, chair to a CEC member to a president's council member, uh, then to a various level of city uh, so parent leadership space, and then finally graduated myself into the PEP. <laughs> and Kaliris, can you tell us about your, your background a little bit? Sure. Um, and, and Lainey has been part of this story for many, many years for me as well. Um, I, uh, I w- was not born and raised in New York City, so I didn't have a lot of information on New York City public schools when my son was two. I was like, I need to talk to some folks and <laughs> learn about what's happening in New York. Um, and was, you know, received and feedback that one of the best schools that my son could attend was Central Park East One Elementary School, um, the oldest progressive public progressive school in New York City, founded by Deborah Meyer. Uh, I live in District Four, so he was priority to be in this school, and I was super excited. I was really ready to be that parent that just like dropped off their kids, supported however I could. Um, I'm a professor at the CUNY School of Medicine, so. That um, took a lot of my time, and I'm a single mom. Uh, little did I know that a couple months later, <laughs> we would be uh, advocating for the removal of a new principal in our school. Um, that battle took about 18 months. Uh, we were successful. But what I learned in that process was how disempowered parents felt, particularly parents in East Harlem, and that if a principal wasn't a good fit for your school, you had to like get to the mayor to make any sort of change. And so we did we escalated in so many different ways to get our point across everything from, you know, attendance strikes to occupying the school, press all around, petitions, all the things. 
um, as well as bird dogging the mayor. Um, I did get tried calls. to get arrested at one point. I remember we did. We, <laughs> we did. We tried. I was the negotiator. I was like, just arrest us. Why can't you just arrest us? Um, and after the struggle, it was interesting. De Blasio's office called me and was like, okay, you, you can stop showing up at all of these different places. Like we're good. Right. Um, and so we've been lucky. The school has been able to rebuild and we're in a very different place. But with that, just like Tazeen, PA co-chair, SLT chair. Then I, again, I wanted to support other parents in East Harlem. There were several school closures um, that particular year in East Harlem. And I learned that these school communities really never had a voice. Um, and some schools even had stories where they felt like the DOE intentionally was closing their schools and sending them poor leaders to like completely have people disengaged and unenroll their children, like actively telling them do not come into the school. Um, so that led me to understand the very integral role of the superintendent in the district and advocate for removal of my superintendent. Um, and there I learned that the best way to, to engage in that conversation was to be on the CEC. Um, and so came into the CEC space uh, worked really hard um, to be able to elevate the voices of the community once I had that platform. Um, and I don't know if the planets aligned, but our superintendent decided to take another job, uh, was supportive um, and supported and engaged by our executive superintendent to be part of the hiring of the new superintendent. District 4 has I will say hands down the most amazing superintendent in all of Manhattan. <laughs> um, I hope you get to keep her, huh? Uh, there will be a fight. Oh. <laughs> that will be my next fight. Um, <laughs> but really happy in that space because we were making transformative change in East Harlem was incredibly happy with my with the council with we have a collaboration with teachers and principals in the district was not at all ever considering being on the pep the pep actually for me is incredibly traumatizing space because for 18 months I would go to the pep and I would I would tell the pep the horrible things that were happening in my son's school and nobody ever responded nobody ever reached out Nobody ever walked down the steps of that stage and was like, hey, are you guys okay? Like, how can I help? And so as far as I was concerned, the PEP was a rubber stamp place, was a place that had no engagement with community, was it was a place that really wasn't really trying to engage anybody in the first place. And so had absolutely zero interest <laughs> in, in having this seat. However, I do understand that we're in a critical time in New York City. And so um, understand having a relationship with Mark Levine in terms of our advocacy and equity in public health. Let's explain um, that Mark Levine is the newly elected borough president. I'm going to get to that question. Let's just hold yeah. off for a second. So, so there are five borough appointees. Um, the previous borough uh, appointees all retired or left because we have new borough presidents, except for Queens, I believe. Um, and uh, so we have a new Manhattan borough president who is Mark Levine and a new borough, uh, 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 Brooklyn borough president. And so just tell us, each of you, um, what was the, how did you approach um, asking to be the new borough appointee and what was the interview process like? Uh, first, Tahin, why don't you tell us? Yeah, um, so it, Right, like you mentioned, um, uh, Anthony Reynoso is our newly appointed um, elected board president, um, and he's new with a brand new staff because our previous board president is now the current mayor. Um, and in that space, I had already engaged um, with him while he was a council member um, in in certain aspects of um, certain places in in Brooklyn um, through, and we even invited him to a town hall that I held along with a uh, uh, fellow Title I PAC chair um, to have, uh, you know, to engage in what he uh, envisioned for Brooklyn. Uh, so he, we already had some sort of interactions with, um, with him as a candidate. But as soon as he got elected, uh, we knew that there was going to be a new appointment um, to, uh, to the PEP. And so my uh, outreach to him was to really uh, propose to him a bunch of 
you know, really good advocates on the on the on the ground doing real work um, as far as potential candidates for PEPs go. Um, so along with my name only probably showed up in the email address. Um, and then, so you're saying that you proposed other people to be appointed, but not yourself. I did. Um, <laughs> that's what I did. Um, and, uh, initially I had emailed it to, uh, to his, uh, office, um, email directly. I don't know if you have ever read it, but if you did it, that's where my name would have showed up. Um, but eventually, um, I had gotten, uh, a call from his office directly asking if I was interested. And at that juncture, I was, uh, my intention was to go on and sort of a engagement, uh, uh, in, I wouldn't call it interview from my end. I just wanted to understand where his, um, what his uh, points of engagement was, what his um, asks was and what, what was his ideals as far as education goes um, so that I could create some sort of uh, a level or a standard for our theft. Um, so it, it couldn't be anyone who has less experience below me. Um, if you wanted to appoint somebody in that space, it had to be someone who was truly fl- uh, fluent in the structures of, uh, of a, a different various, uh, levels, school, um, level, and then the district level and so on, um, versed in different, um, sort of topics of the, uh, of the time. So this is class size. This is, um, Black Life Matters. This is, um, a, you know, anti-racist a curriculum. Uh, every um, you know everything and anything that was relevant. So if I was the sta- if I was going to present myself as the standard, he couldn't have gone to anybody lower. Then we would have pushed back. It was just you know a, a strategy point on my behalf to sort of uh, you know make sure a few of the good people um, get uh, selected for this candidacy. Um, but then I think in the background he said that he had done some background work on who I was and got sort of affirmation from different folks in the work in the in the um, labor uh, for getting equitable education for our children who had uh, mentioned my name also and then finally um, he thought he would uh, square up with me and I had this very very wonderful dialogue I would say more more than an interview with him um, that helped me solidify the space and in that space I was very clear um, in that that if I can't really um, stand ground on my um stand firm on my moral grounds um that i won't be effective as a pep appointee and if the if he wouldn't give me that uh, at least that type of um uh autonomy in making sure that what i believe in was um, uh, being emulated in what i propose at pep um then maybe he should uh, look for it elsewhere and he absolutely promised me that he would never compromise um my positions going forward and on that, I think it was sealed um, and, and it, out of the respect for education and our students, I think we settled on me being the pointy. So, Kaliris, tell me how, whether you, you applied for the job and what the interview process was like. Yeah, I just want to commend Reynoso for making an amazing decision. Um, <laughs> we Mark Mark um, engaged with with me and with the other members of the steering committee for Press um, Parents for Responsive Responsive Safe Equitable Schools, which Tazine is also part of. And we spent a lot of time just talking about safety in schools. Um, how to engage uh, in terms of advocacy around mitigation measures and transparency. And so we had a relationship then. Um, As he was coming into office, um, I organized a meeting with uh, a member from each CEC in Manhattan so that he would know like what's happening and all in the rest of Manhattan and what's going on um, and what some of the concerns were uh, in terms of this power structure and how we would like what we would like to see in the next PEP appointee. And in that conversation, he was like, so send me some names. Tell me who you're thinking about. Um, And so we put together a list. Um, I was supposed to be a placeholder. (laughs) <laughs> in terms, I was like, let's just put as many folks as we know, know the system, you know, have those standards, just like Tazim um, mentioned, and let's provide him with a list so, so that he could engage multiple advocates um, in the space and understand um, what what advocates for equity really look like. Those that are going to fight for smaller class sizes, those are, that are going to fight for culturally responsive practices, and for a democratic governance um, and so he started interviewing um, some folks. At he we we spoke as well. I just so happened also to have a relationship with some of his staffers because 
being a part of CEC4, president of CEC4, I was brought into that space by Gail Brewer as well. So I knew the education folks in the office that he had inherited, had a relationship with them. Um, and so he chose me um, as somebody that represents his three priorities, which are equity, resilience, and public health in all spaces. So just to make clear, um, he was also the, uh, the health chair of the city council. So he has been extremely vocal and involved in the issue of COVID transmission and and COVID uh, protocols to stem the transmission of COVID um, has been very vocal on that. And so I think the two of you really um, had a lot in common in terms of your leadership and your, you know, your, your, your outreach on this issue that was so, and remains so important in terms of every facet of New York City life, but I think especially our schools, which are turning out to be one of the primary ways that COVID is still being transmitted throughout the city. Um, Since you were appointed, both of you, along with, I think, eight new mayoral appointees, there have been several meetings where your votes and those of other panel members seem to switch in consecutive monthly meetings, which this was a little bit confusing to me and maybe some of the other people watching. Um, first, there was a consulting contract worth millions of dollars that was voted down. And then the next meeting was voted up and then fair student funding as well. And I think both of you switched your positions on that as well. So could you just very quickly explain what happened? Because I'm curious to hear and I know others are as well. Tajin, you want to go first? Yeah. Um, so yes, on the consulting um, uh, contract, I did um, flip my vote, and I'll give you why. But for the fair student funding, I I maintained my um, abstention from oh, the first okay. to the second right. um, because um, the truth still sta- uh, stood. Um, we were promised, uh, or we made, I made um, certain specific asks as far as a commission goes and where it should stand, um, and some sort of very. Um, uh, 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 like a written um, confirmation of that being ha- um, happening um, from at that meeting, but that really um, didn't materialize. And so I maintained abstention. I actually looked up what the meaning of abstention meant before that meeting, uh, which was, um, you know, to withhold uh, a vote for yes or no, um, because the, you know, the full breadth of information that was required wasn't, isn't present. And that's what I felt was happening. And uh, so I maintained that. But as far as the contract, um, goes, I, I just want to preface this answer by saying that, uh, at this juncture, the DOE staff, um, it, uh, who are interfacing with us to us feels like, um, brand new. Most of them are, um, you know, brand new folks, uh, that are, that are just, you know, towing the line and us as um, newly appointed folks are also coming from a, um, a me specific is coming from a borough president's appointee space that is also new. There is a lot of information that we have to learn in real line, uh, in real time for us to make these very critical, decisive um, uh, decisions. Um, so at that point, uh, for that uh, specific contract, we just didn't have enough information. Uh, and the and the way that these uh, contract briefing goes is unless we bring up questions um, that we we're you know might be just pondering about not that you know we know at that point that there's something um, you know inherently wrong with it or there might be or there could be um, those things don't come up unless we bring it up just out of like you know curiosity uh, they never sort of divulge that information uh, willingly. Uh, so in that case, our our point of um, hesitation was that we just don't know enough about it. And for me, for the first time, I just didn't understand why it's such a giant contract. Uh, it was my first time. I didn't understand why it's such a giant contract. And they uh, very, they were very proud of the fact that this was a um, MWBE um, vendor. Uh, and so in that... In, in that for our listeners, which means minority women, what? Uh, business and enterprises. Okay. Uh, so uh, this is a new initiative by DOE uh, to uh, sort of uh, 
get in contact with and then onboard a lot, a much, uh, many more minority-owned and women-led businesses and enterprises. And so this was their, um, you know, v- the big reveal. This was going to be a giant contract and it was going to be um, awarded to this minority-owned business. Uh, but then our point was that if this is... Uh, there was only one uh, viable vendor in that case. Um, so our point was like, if it was so big and then you only had one taker, why not break it up? That was my um, uh, question. And why not break it up and then uh, make smaller contracts so that we could see in practice what it what the effect was. And then we could have more folks, um, as far as vendors go, um, go for the smaller um, vendor uh, sort of contract. And also more choice for principals because one of their arguments, I believe, to just to explain to our listeners who don't even know what this contract was about, it was for consultants to be hired either by DOE centrally, though they tried to de-emphasize that at a certain point, or by principals to fill in for positions that they needed, presumably on a temporary basis, that they didn't want to hire per, uh, permanent staff for. And my feeling was that they were very lazy and inadequate in explaining what these people would be doing. You specifically, Tajin, said, you know, what are these people going to be doing in schools if they're going to be doing culturally relevant education, which I think is something that they brought up. Why can't we get someone who's on staff at the school doing this? Why this one company? Why so much money? Um, And they really didn't have great answers at first for that, but then they provided better answers as time went on. Uh, Kaliris, do you want to chime in? Yeah, Yeah, I will also add that they were also talking about things, particularly during that PEP meeting, about like things that we aren't implementing anymore. The rec centers, situation room, like we know the situation room is understaffed. So what are you talking about? Um, Later on when we came back, so this is what they do to us. They schedule us for these different briefings. All the briefings are one hour. And during that time, they try to pack in a lot of information. So this is one hour on many subjects or just the contracts you're talking about? So it depends which subject it is. There are some Mm -hmm. that are like, okay, here are contracts. We're going to give you an hour. Sometimes they extend a little bit, but it's like multiple contracts. Or, you know, here we're going to, we're going to talk about, so they gave us a briefing on the superintendent hire, which is crazy right now. And and I'm sure we can spend another hour talking about that. But that briefing was attached to open meetings law, attached to yellow bus transportation. So in an hour, you have to talk about three different things that, that are very layered and very nuanced. And if you're not in the know, like that's the advantage that Tazine, Tom, and I have that we've been in CECs, we, we, we're fresh off the ground. <laughs> um, so we know, and we st- stay in contact with folks like you, Lainey, with, with other um, advocacy groups. We stay in contact with what are the things that they want? What do parent communities want? What the student community wants, right? We have relationships with Integrate and TTC, Teens Take Charge, to be able to know. So when we're in that space, we have the opportunity to ask those questions, but we have very limited time. And then we have our colleagues in that space that don't know as much. And so it turns also into an education time. Like, okay, you don't know how this works. Let's try to, you know, build the block so that you do understand so that you can ask questions. And it becomes, it's very complicated to get to the nuance. That's why you see dis- decisions shifting in like real time <laughs> um, because, like when you don't have enough information and you keep on asking questions, you get some answers. Some PEP members get answers. Others don't see those same answers and things are consistently changing. So for this particular contract, we did spend significant time talking about what this meant. This is a budget line in, in the school's budget. They can use a certain amount of money. This actually starts at zero. So it's like a prediction based on, former costs that they're saying it's 82 million, they can spend up to 82 million, doesn't necessarily mean those 82 million will be spent either. And there were ways that they were like, look, schools have used this to support, you know, during a time of enrollment, for example, where they need more hands, if it's a large school, they need more hands to help, like, enroll students. A, a principal can hire somebody to help support that. If they have a large PA or PTA and they need an aid, I've never heard of that, but apparently some schools, you know, do use that. And so right now I'm telling folks, y'all look at your budget 
talk to your principal. There's money there to provide additional support on a temporary basis to your school. Get that money. So you're saying there's an additional amount of money that every school has been given for this purpose or that could also be used to keep other uh, staff members on staff if the budgets are cut, for example. It's essentially like a line of credit. Um, yeah. for for um, schools. So um, if they want to utilize it, they can. They have this, um, um, so, uh, what do you call, separated and held for schools to tap into if they want. Um, and so what we did ask for like a, a list of how schools been using it and where these schools are located. And um, uh, the burden on um, the, what we had placed the burden on going forward is that they must disseminate this information to everybody equitably so that they could tap into. And I just want to add one part to this thing. Um, they did say that they saved about a million plus dollars on this contract, uh, this iteration of the contract from the uh, past vendor. This is a brand new vendor as opposed to the old one. Um, and the fact that this has been happening before too, we're at this juncture when they bring us these contracts, these are already, um, these are retrospective. Um, and so we, at that point, if we say no, it has no <laughs> impact. That's another problem with the PAP is that you are asked to vote on contracts where the money's already been spent. I have a million more questions for the both of you. I really um, pray that you can come back um, another time soon because I literally have 10 more questions for you. Do you think you might be able to come back for another show? Listen, we might be here for five shows. It's Thank so you so much. much. Uh, yeah. Let's put out a contract. Yes. Pay for it. I want to thank you both for your hard work for parents and children and letting us know just a little bit about what it's like to be on the PEP. I'll put links to the PEP page with your contact information in the resources section. Our show Talk Out of School is available as a podcast if you missed any part of the live version. If you hear it through Apple, please leave a review. Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212 209 2950. That's 212-209-2950. We really need the support of listeners like you to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run ads. You can also uh, easily donate online at WBAI.org. We'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Yeah, class that matters. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study them hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone The guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell a month. It's the price of a gigabyte of data for that iPad you never use. It's two overpriced coffees you ordered when you forgot to look at the menu. It's your overzealous attempts to meet the credit card minimum at the bodega on the corner. But $10 a month could be a lot more. Become a BAI buddy and commit to a recurring monthly donation to WBAI. This money will help us continue to broadcast the thoughts and perspectives of the progressive public. A BAI buddy is also not without perks. Your monthly contribution will earn you a WBAI tote bag and a member card offering zip car sales, discounted meals at select restaurants, and a handful of other benefits. You will also become a full voting member of WBAI, and our diverse programming will reflect your voice. Go to give to WBAI.org and become a BAI buddy to support Free Speech Radio today. This dude is bad. He's sexy. Okay, maybe not. He's a bad mother. Shut your mouth. He's Tony Ryan. On WBAI New York 99.5 FM. He's got both. Can you dig it? Yeah, yeah, I can dig it, yeah. He's got classic soul. He's, he's, okay, I can't think of anything else. I'm Tony Ryan. Tune in Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Soul Central Station with Tony Ryan. 99.5 WBAI. Extinction Diaries.
A Yale study confirms that a mass extinction 66 million years ago included a steep drop in ocean pH levels, a clear sign the oceans were high in acidity, just like today. By studying the fossil remains of ancient plankton, scientists determined these and other marine animals with shells and skeletons from calcium carbonate were disproportionately wiped out in that extinction. The study suggests higher ocean acidity prevented these calcifiers from creating their shells. This means the first level of the ocean food chain, supporting the rest of the ecosystem, collapsed and triggered the mass extinction. Acidity in today's oceans have not been this high since tens of millions of years before modern man. Our civilization is adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, and the oceans are absorbing that, raising the acidity. Today's coral, shellfish, and species like shrimp, crabs, and lobster are already wearing down their shells. Oddly, we recognize the consequences, but continue to fail to fix the problem. My name is Arne Oliveira, and this is a Small World Radio production. 99.5 FM, WBAI, New York. Good afternoon to all of our listeners. That last program was Talk Out of School, a program which you can hear every Saturday afternoon from 1 to 2 o'clock. Now, coming up next, we have Latin Roots with...